Good morning. This is an unexpected privilege for Marie and me. My wife Marie is with us, with me today, and we were here a couple of weeks ago, just over a weekend with our pastor and friend Jerry and Kathy Weber, who pastored Sebring, Florida, where we stayed for several months in the winter months. And it was a delight to come into this fellowship and enjoy the preaching of your pastor out of, uh, I think it was in Joshua, the third and fourth chapters a couple of weeks ago. Did an excellent job. We've known Ken Davies for, for many, many years. And of course, as you've just heard, we've known Dr. and Mrs. Clearwaters for, <laughs> Dr. and Mrs. McCune very, for many years. We know the Clearwaters too, they're now with the Lord. Dr. and Mrs. McCune have been a rich blessing to countless numbers of students. And uh, his, it's true, his first year at the Central was my first year at Central in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I would have paid double or triple to have sat in his classes, as would all of the students who were there at that time. We were enriched by his teaching. And there are hundreds of students all over the globe parroting what Dr. McCune taught them. And we've all enjoyed uh, this man of God and the impact he's had on so many of us. We have a sort of mutual admiration society here. <laughs> but I just appreciate both Dr. and Mrs. McCune. They've been a rich blessing. Now, I'm in Philippians 2, 17 to 30 this morning, and of course, that's too many verses to cover in one message. It'll be a survey. I've got three points. I hope I can get through two of them. I've spent a lifetime uh, trying to say too much in too little time, and I'll do the best I can here. I'm talking about the triumph of servant living, and that's what I think is being portrayed here in Philippians 2, 17 to 30, the triumph of servant living. What servant living and servant serving what doing mission and ministry in a biblical way looks like. It's really the pattern, I think, this triumph of servant living is the pattern for Christian mission, and I want to spend a few minutes this morning talking about that. We have a word of prayer together. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being in this ministry this morning. Thanks for this good church, Pastor Ken Davies and Carla and their good ministry over these years, the delight to reconnect with Dr. and Mrs and to meet new friends and precious servants of the Lord. Every time I stand in a setting like this, Father, I sense my own inadequacies and my deep sense of need for you. So I would like to ask, Father, that the same Holy Spirit who first spoke this word through the pen and the mind and heart and soul of the Apostle Paul, the same Holy Spirit who first spoke it, the Eternal Spirit, would now speak it, afresh and anew to our hearts. Through the flawed messenger, every messenger on this side of the rapture is a flawed messenger. But we try to communicate the flawless message of the text of Scripture, and we can't do that apart from your grace and your presence and the special aid of the Holy Spirit who quickens our cognitive powers and opens our minds and hearts to the truth, helping us to understand it and enabling us to live it out. So I, I trust you for that special presence in these moments together. Thank you for the privilege of being in this pulpit. Awesome privilege and also a sobering responsibility. 
we'll just commit these moments to, to you and ask for your rich blessing in the midst of them, your blessing on this body of believers, your continued blessing on this good church and pastor and people. We ask for the special presence of your spirit in these moments together. We ask you for it in the name and through the mighty blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The triumph of um, servant living, Philippians 2, verses 17 to 30. I think it's right to say that millions of people in our culture suffer from what they call an identity crisis. They seem not to know who they are or why they are here or where they are headed. They, they lack a sense of identity. Who am I? A, a lack of a sense of utility. Why am I here? They lack a sense of destiny. Where am I headed? If you think about it, in some ways, this is really no surprise. Unfortunately, they have been taught by the secular Darwinian, postmodern, which means anti-truth, among other things. They've been taught by the secular Darwinian, postmodern academy and media that they are nothing more than a highly organized system of molecules and atoms, the product of countless accidents over eons of evolutionary history, a mechanical kind of chance parade from atom to amoeba, the spontaneous generation of life, which is an unthinkable possibility, from atom to amoeba and from amoeba to anthropos or mankind. And all of that process superintended by dumb luck and blind chance plus time. Darwinians ask us to believe that lifeless elements produce living things, that uh, impersonal influences produce personal beings, that irrational forces produce rational creatures, and that chaotic activities produce meticulously designed features. I think it's too much to ask. It's unbelievable. I think it's a myth. The awfulness of this Darwinian fantasy is that humankind becomes tragically devalued and in many respects defiled. We're sort of the off-scouring of the Big Bang, the ac where accidents floating aimlessly, in their way of thinking, accidents floating aimlessly through time and space, rootless cut flowers without meaning, without direction, without purpose. For people who have been trained to think like this, and most people in our civilization, our culture, are now trained to think like this. The establishment intelligentsia has established this, as, has defined this as the only politically correct way of teaching. There are no alternative views. No other view is tolerated. And if you raise an alternative, you'll be censured. You might be expelled. In some cases, you might be prosecuted. For people who have been trained to think like this, life becomes cheap and chaotic. It becomes, I think, becomes confused and it becomes corrupt. But Christians who know their Bibles in churches like this, you have a great pastor who teaches you the Word of God with depth. Christians who know their Bibles have no such crisis of identity. We know who we are. We are creatures made in God's image, fallen into sin but redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We know why we are here. We are here to stand in a relationship of love and obedience to God. We're here to serve him by serving others, both regenerate and unregenerate classifications. We are here to serve 
him by serving others, and we do it for his glory, and we do it for their good. We have utility, and we know where we are headed. In Jesus Christ, we're no longer bound for the devil's hell. We're bound for ultimate glorification of our entire being personally. Paul says that in this book, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. We're bound for ultimate glorification of our entire being personally and Edenic restoration of the entire created order universally. What is called by Matthew the regeneration in Matthew 19 and verse 28. And what this means is we have identity. We know who we are. We have utility. We know why we're here. And we have destiny. We know where we are headed. I think it's right to say that supremely we've been left here on planet Earth to be God's servants. To spend and be spent, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15, to spend and be spent by redeeming the time, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.16, by redeeming the time because the days are evil. Paul's whole life had been a classic demonstration of quintessential I think it means the purest form of something. Paul's whole life had been a classic demonstration of quintessential Christian service. And what was true of the Apostle Paul, I think, was true as well of the other two personalities that we just read about in Philippians 2, Timothy and Epaphroditus. It was true of them as well. So what we have in these verses that were read to us just a few moments ago, what we have here are what I would like to call the sterling practices of an authentic servant of Jesus Christ. And I want to list three of these sterling practices. Each of them is fleshed out in mortal men. People are cut out of the same bowl of cloth that you and I are so that mortal, mere mortals can reach this level through the aid of the Spirit and the Word. The transformative power of those two great change agents, the Spirit of God and, and the Word of God. They're fleshed out in, in these three personalities. Paul in verses 17 and 18, and Timothy in verses 19 to 24, and Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 30. The, the, the sterling practices, if we're going to identify them, they, they sound like this. They look like this, at least for Doug. One is sacrificing for others rather than protecting ourselves. And that's Paul in verses 17 and 18. He's being poured out as a drink offering, a sacrifice. The second is caring for others rather than pampering ourselves, and that's Timothy. I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for the things that encircle you, literally, I think is the Greek, the things that concern you. Caring for others rather than pampering ourselves. And the third is risking everything for others rather than preserving ourselves. And that's Epaphroditus. He risked his life, verse 30 says. There's a lot of things I like to say about Epaphroditus, but I won't be able to because I'll run out of time. But I hope I can get to that point at least. Number one, sacrificing for others rather than preserving ourselves. And I think Paul is the model here. It's in verses 17 and 18. If your Bible's open to Philippians 2, you heard those verses read just a couple of, of minutes ago. And I just want to give a couple of simple insights out of verses 17 and 18. I think in those verses, first there's a sacrificial act, and then there's a celebrative spirit. I just want to talk about those two ideas quickly in verses 17 and 18. First, a sacrificial act. Paul says, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, spendemai, I think is the Greek word. It's a violent, really, if you think about it, it's a violent, sacrificial, metaphor, 
borrowed from the Old Testament economy. Paul's using an Old Testament sacrificial picture. It's the picture uh, of a liquid. It might have been wine or olive oil being poured out over a sacrifice before it was consumed in the sacrificial flame of the Old Testament tabernacle and later temple. It was a drink offering or a libation. And it was always the final act of the sacrificial ceremony, completing and perfecting it just before the sacrifice was consumed in flames. In other words, Paul had sacrificed and served, that's what he says in these verses, Paul had sacrificed and served to give birth to the Philippian church, and you can read about that in Acts 16, verses 11 to 34. He took a beating in Philippi. He'd sacrificed and served to give birth to the Philippian church, and the believers in Philippi had sacrificed and served to extend and grow that church. In each case, these were manifestations of their faith. That's what Paul is saying there in verses 17 and 18. And now Paul stands ready to carry out the last act, if you will, the final act of the sacrificial ritual and be poured out over the sacrifice and service of their faith. Only this time, in this drink offering, it's not wine or oil that's being poured out. It's, it's, it's the lifeblood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Paul was in a Roman prison at this time. He's writing from the city of Rome. As it turns out, he probably did not die at the end of this imprisonment, but was probably released for two or three years, re-imprisoned, and then actually experienced what he's describing here. He was decapitated on the Ostian Way, just a few miles outside, according to church tradition, a few miles outside the city of Rome. I like what F.F. Bruce says about this. He says, as, he, as Paul stands before the imperial court in Rome, where he is imprisoned, he hopes for a favorable verdict from the court, but he cannot be sure. The case might go the other way, and he might be sentenced to death. Bruce says, if so, the sentence would be carried out by decapitation. How would Paul view that prospect? Bruce asks. And Paul's Paul tells us right here in this text, I'm happy to complete the sacrificial ritual. I willingly yield up my life for God and for others, for Christ and his cause, if that is what God ordains for my life. To me, this is a stunning text. If you weigh it, if you think about it, its ethical implications, the moral responsibility it lays upon us in our 21st century world as it laid upon Paul in his first century world. It's a stunning text because it defines authentic Christian servant living and servant serving as having a sacrificial motif or pattern. This is nothing new for the Apostle Paul. Ever since his conversion, Paul had sacrificed everything to Jesus Christ, his money, his scholarship, his time. The fullness of his schedule, the vigor of his body, the, the acuteness of his massive intellect, the devotion of his heart, the submission of his will, the integrity of his character, every bit of it was given over in sacrificial service to Jesus Christ and the needs of humankind. Paul's whole life had been a, a living sacrifice, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul had written it and Paul lived that, that ethic out in his life. And now, from his Roman prison, he faces the potential of imminent execution. The potential of it. And as he does so, he willingly views that death as, as the final act of his personal, sacrificial faith journey. It's a stunning profile of what authentic servants of Jesus Christ 
not just vocational servants who stand behind pulpits or lecterns, but all of us who are the servants of God. The stunning profile of what authentic servants of Christ should look like. But there's a second important insight here. There's the sacrificial act. Really, it was a sacrificial life for the Apostle Paul. But there's also a celebrative spirit. He says, if you notice at the end, I'm reading here from the New King James. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And I want you to be glad and rejoice with me. Verses 17 and 18. This too is stunning, in my opinion. With all this talk about death and dying, sacrificing and suffering, pouring out and perishing, with all this talk about spending and being spent, you would think that Paul's attitude would be infected with a terrible weight of pessimistic despair. But just the opposite is true. Paul is not in a doom and gloom. He says, rather, he says, I rejoice and rejoice with you all. You rejoice and rejoice with me. Literally, if you take the Greek terms, four times the word Cairo, rejoice, shows up there in those two verses. Rejoice and rejoice, rejoice and rejoice. In other words, I think one of the things this, this means, how can somebody rejoice in this kind of context? In other words, our personal reception of Jesus Christ as Savior and Sovereign of our lives. And I wonder if I can park there just for a moment. I hope all of us here can claim to have made genuinely a personal reception of Jesus Christ as Savior and Sovereign of our lives. I came to Christ when I was a 16-year-old boy. i got to park here for a moment. I came to Christ when I was a 16-year-old boy. I'm 71 right now, and I'm a little ticked about it. But there's nothing I can do about it. It's been 55 years since I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ. My grandfather was a gangster in the city of Detroit. He was actually shot and murdered there. Ken Davies would have known this. He might not have had me come. I don't know. <laughs> my familial pedigree is not very impressive. Granddad was a gangster. My father was a very heavy drinker, and uh, he tended bar in three different bars in the little town of Montrose, Michigan, right outside of Flint, Michigan. And in my high school years, I, I, in other words, I learned a lot of bad habits growing up in that kind of context, I, I, I'm ashamed to affirm. But in the little town in which I was raised, there was a church plant going on, a little Baptist church called Montrose Baptist Church. And there were about 20 or 25 teenagers in the public school where I attended who were dynamite Christians. They weren't wearing masks. They weren't pretending to be one thing in church and another thing in school. They were genuine, authentic Christians. They were salt and light in, as my mother used to call me, little Dougie McLaughlin's life. And the light that they were was a loving rebuke. The light that was in them, the light that was in them was a loving rebuke to the darkness that was in Doug. And I was drawn to that light like a moth is drawn to light. And the salt that they were gave me a thirst for what they had, which is what salt always does. It never quenches anybody's thirst. It only creates thirsts. But Jesus Christ quenches the thirst. And that's what they became for me. So as a 16-year-old boy, I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ. That little church welcomed, welcomed me here. I'm the son of a bartender, literally on the wrong side of the tracks, if you could see Montrose, Michigan. I didn't bring anything of status or wealth or influence or power or significance to that church, except that I am a creature made in God's image. And they imputed value to me on that basis. And on account of that, they welcomed me into their church, and they, they invited me into their families, and for the first time in my life, I saw what a Christian family looks like, and I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ. 
I hope everybody here has come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. It was a radical, if I may put it this way, it was a radical rudder reset for me. And it's been life transformative for more than half a century now and will be for all of eternity. And I thank God for that body of believers and those authentic teenagers who weren't playing games but were actually fleshing out a gospel ethic and brought me to personal faith in Christ. And I think that's what's going on here. Our personal reception of Jesus Christ as Savior and Sovereign of our lives and our embrace of Christian truth. We embrace Christian truth. We embrace the Word of God. Those two components make such a radical impact on our lives that it is possible, just as Paul was, it is possible for us to be full of joy in the face of death. Paul was. A stunning model for all authentic servants. I want to park her a little bit longer. As I said, this is my, my greatest curse is verbosity. This is such a different paradigm from the secular Darwinian world, if you think about it full of joy in the face of death. For the secular world, death is the great unmentionable. It's that dark cloud that hovers over all of life and that we don't want to talk about. Secularists think of death as stupefying in its terror and annihilating in its effect, to quote Woody Allen, who's a good secularist, and he obsesses over death. We probably all have heard his famous quip, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But he says more than that. Woody Allen said in Esquire magazine, he said, the fundamental thing behind all motivation, listen to this, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation, against death. That's how he understands death, is annihilation. He says it's absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders any, anyone's accomplishments meaningless. And I think we have to hasten to say as Christians that we do not share in this pessimism. Because death itself, according to the Bible, has been overthrown by Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says that Jesus Christ abolished death, 2 Timothy 1, in verse 10. Our salvation in Christ has now been revealed by the appearing, the epiphania, the epiphany of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and light to immortality through the gospel. And what does it mean that, that he abolished death? Obviously, it doesn't mean that Christians don't experience death. We face death every day of our lives. It's all around us. We'll all, we'll all experience it apart from the rapture of our Lord Jesus Christ coming. So what does Paul mean? The word abolished, if you're, if you're still with me, I'm in 2 Timothy 1.10, just for a second longer. The word abolished, kathargeo, means to condemn to inactivity or to put out of use. And you have to wonder, what does that mean? And I think theologically it means this. Jesus rendered death powerless. That's what the word abolished means in 2 Timothy 1.10. Jesus rendered death powerless over his followers when he took our place and died our death on the cross. He died our death for us under the weight of God's judgment. Death for the believer is no longer the grim ogre it once was. You know, Paul likens death to a scorpion whose sting, whose sting has been removed. Oh, death, where is your sting? He has in mind a scorpion, I think, whose sting has been removed. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. On the cross, Jesus Christ endured in his own body and being the sting of sin. That is to say, it's lethal, deadly, 
and poisonous sting, that which our sin so richly deserves. He did this as our sin-bearing and wrath-pacifying substitute. That's what the word propitiation means. My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And that word propitiation means sin-bearing, wrath-pacifying substitute. That's what Jesus died for us in our stead as our substitute on the cross in order that we would not have to endure that sting ourselves. For us, death is like a stingless scorpion. It might be dreadful in appearance, but it's impotent in influence, powerless to do any lasting harm to the one who believes in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the resurrection of the life. He that believes in me, even though he died, Christians experience death. May I put it this way? Christians experience death, but they don't die. Even though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in Jesus, whoever lives and believes in me, Jesus said, shall never, shall never die. So Paul rejoices in the face of the very real possibility of death by decapitation. Both his life of sacrificial service and his death as a drink offering were suffused with joy, a celebrative spirit, and that's what authentic servant living looks like. Sacrificing for others rather than preserving ourselves. That's what it means to be a servant of the Lord. Sacrificing for others rather than preserving ourselves and doing so with a joyful disposition. I am glad and I rejoice, Paul says, and I want you to be glad and rejoice with me. Stunning model of what it means to be a servant of the Lord. Most of us, of course, won't be called upon to die for Jesus Christ. Not many, perhaps not any of us, will be subjected to martyrdom. Although, have you noticed, I think we're descending deeper and deeper into the darkness and into the decadence. And for my grandchildren, it might be much, it might be much more difficult to live in for and identify with Jesus Christ and people in my generation. Most of us won't be called upon to die for Jesus Christ, but all of us are called upon to live for Jesus Christ. And we should live by the same principles. We should live sacrificially, and we should live joyfully, counted a privilege to do so. We have to ask ourselves where we are on the spectrum when it comes to that disposition and living out our lives for Christ. And I have to ask myself. Now, there's a second sterling quality. I can see that clock back there, strategically located right in front of the preacher. There's a second sterling practice of an authentic servant of God. And that is caring for others rather than pampering ourselves. I can't go through all the verses in verses 19 to 24 there, but they were read to you a few moments ago. In this case, it's not Paul who is the model, but Timothy. And the practice, the sterling practice, is caring for others rather than pampering ourselves. And there are several ways of looking at this. I'm going to list, if you can stand this, I'm going to list three portraits of what this looks like in Timothy. I'm just going to lift them out of the text and see if they make any sense to you. Number one, Timothy thinks Christianly. Number two, Timothy cares deeply. Number three, Timothy serves redemptively. I think all three of those are in the heart of that text. Number one, Timothy thinks Christianly. Paul says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. I have no one like-minded. 
he, there he is in Rome, surrounded by some Christians. And there's a certain circle of Christians, some of which might qualify to be his envoy, his apostolic delegate, delegate to take this letter up to Philippi, which is about 700 to 800 miles away. But among that circle of people who might qualify, no one is like-minded. No one shares the mind of Christ like Timothy shares that mind. I have no one like-minded in, 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 in his immediate circle of believers in Rome. They're not thinking Christianly. They're not thinking like Christ. That's what I think this means. To be like-minded, to be equal-souled, actually is the word, to think and be sold together as one is the word, isosukas. To be like-minded, like-souled. In this context, I, I think me, it means to be surrendered to the mind of Christ. That is, that's the dominant pattern of thought or idea in Philippians 2. If you look up the page to Philippians 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then verses 6 to 8, we get a real picture of, of what that looks like. The overriding motif or pattern of thought in chapter chapter 2. But what, what, what does the mind of Christ look like? If, if you take a look at verses 6 to 8, I'll just give you a simple outline here. If you take a look at verses 6 to 8, you'll get a picture of what that mind looks like. I think it looks like this. You could say a thousand things about this. Whole books are written on the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ. That's what's going on in those verses. He made himself of no reputation or he emptied himself. He cannot owe to himself. That's the kenosis in theology. You, you can write whole books and volumes of books on this concept. I'm going to tell you two things. I think the mind of Christ in its most basic form, based on verses 6 to 8 of Philippians 2, looks like this. And I think it's that mind that Paul is ascribing to Timothy. Timothy thinks like this. He's like-minded with me. We embrace the mind of Christ. The two components that I think are there are, number one, unimaginable selflessness, who being in the form of God, authentic, genuine form, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be selfishly grasped or held onto and manipulatively used for his own benefit while he was here. But instead he emptied himself, poured himself empty that he might pour us full. He emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And I think, I think Paul is talking here about the incarnation God became a man, dust, for dust we are, and unto dust we shall return. We are shaped and formed by the ultimate artisan of the universe out of the dust of the earth in Genesis 2 and verse 7. Dust was added to deity, humanity to deity. The second member of the divine Godhead, the eternal Son of God, the second member of the divine Godhead was subjected to human babyhood. The divine Godhead subjected to human babyhood in a Jewish maiden's womb. Unimaginable selflessness. He impoverished himself to enrich us. I've always loved 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in his being, yet for your sakes he became poor, and it means poverty-stricken. The Greek word tokos, which means absolute poverty. He impoverished himself to enrich us. That you through his poverty, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, that you through his poverty might be made rich. He impoverished himself to enrich us. That is unimaginable selflessness. 
All the privileges, powers, perks, and prerogatives of deity he willingly laid aside in order to identify with us in our humanity and redeem our lost souls. He never laid aside his deity. No, he was 100% God and 100% humanity, of course. But those privileges, those powers, those perks, those prerogatives of deity, he laid those aside. I like what J.A. Packer says. It was not a reduction of his deity. That's impossible. It was not a reduction of his deity, but a restraint of it so that he could more fully identify with us in our humanity. This is unimaginable selflessness. That's what the mind of Christ looks like. Unself-centeredness. Secondly, it looks like unthinkable sacrifice. If you're looking at Philippians 2 and verse 8, you'll see it there. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, literally a death of a cross, that is a cross death. In other words, this was no ordinary obedience because it was an obedience that led all the way to death. And this was no ordinary death because it was a death that led all the way to the cross. Unthinkable sacrifice. I'm going to park by the cross just for a moment. Anybody with me on this yet? You still with me a little bit, class, as we used to say? We just need to pause just for a moment and think about the cross. Unthinkable sacrifice. F.F. F. Bruce says that in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. Not to be uttered in civil conversation. Of course, there was plenty of uncivil conversation in the first century Roman world as there is in the 21st century American world. But in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity, not to be uttered in civil conversation. Even when a man, Bruce says this, even when a man was being sentenced to death by crucifixion, they didn't utter the word cross. They used an archaic formula to avoid the pronouncing of this four-letter word as it was in Latin, the Romans spoke in Latin. The word for cross in Latin is C-R-U-X. Crux. Exactly. In English, the word crux means the essential point, the point on which everything else hinges. Exactly. Precisely. That is what the cross of Christ is. It is the cosmic crux of human history. Everything hinges on that crosswork of Jesus Christ. The point on which everything having to do with human, with human salvation hinges. This utterly vile form of punishment, Bruce says, I'm quoting him and I'll finish in just a moment, this utterly vile form of punishment, which was an unmentionable in Roman society, is what Jesus endured on our behalf for our salvation. This is unthinkable sacrifice. And I think these two realities, if you're with me at all, unimaginable selflessness and unthinkable sacrifice constitute, in summary fashion, the mind of Christ. This was how Timothy looked at life and lived it. Paul says, I have no one like mine. I don't have anybody around me that thinks like this. Unself-centered, sacrificial disposition. No one except Timothy. Timothy not only, Timothy not only thinks Christianly, he's like-minded, he cares deeply. He cares deeply. He will sincerely care. That's the New King James translation. He will sincerely care for your state. It's in verses 20 and verse 21. In other words, in a me-first world, 
Timothy knows how to say you first and actually mean it. He fleshed it out in his daily life. What does it mean to care deeply? I, I can only spend a moment here. I think it means two things to care deeply. One, it means to care intensely. And the reason I say that is that's what the word care actually conveys. The Greek word merimnao, which is translated to care, is what it conveys. It describes a pressure or a weight that grows out of a deep concern for the well-being and the welfare of others. That's what that word means. There's intensity in that word. The troubles of others trouble Timothy. He had to be a load-bearer. He had to be a people supporter. He was the great empathizer. That's what I think Paul is saying. He will sincerely care, intensely care, for your state. Secondly, caring deeply means not only to care intensely, but it also means to care genuinely. And that's the meaning of the word sincerely. Precisely what the word sincerely, nasios is the word in Greek. It's what it means. It means absolutely genuine. In other words, there were no pretensions. It was like those teenagers in that public school, which God in his sovereign providence plugged into my life. No pretensions. He wasn't acting out a part. He wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, he wasn't turning the Christian experience into a piece of theater on the stage. He wasn't showing up for photo ops and then going back to the lap of luxury. Timothy was completely genuine. He was totally sincere. There was not one particle of hypocrisy in Timothy's love for Jesus or his care for people. I think that's what Paul is saying here by the use of this kind of verbiage. By the way, this was, this was a stunning contrast to most of the believers in Rome. You look at verse 21, what does it say in verse 21? For, for all seek their own. Not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 and verse 21. All seek their own, not the things which are of Christ or Jesus. Are you hearing the same sound effects that I'm hearing? I must have got too excited up here in this pulpit and something's going wrong with the system. I, don't know. I hope I'm not backfiring here in terms of the mic that's going for you. But just plug into me and stay, stay tuned. We'll see if we can get through this. This was a stunning contrast to most of the believers in Rome. Verse 21 says, all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. By the way, that is a tragic betrayal of agape, of biblical love. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, and Paul is giving their 15 descriptive points of what biblical agape really looks like in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. In verse 5 he says, love does not seek its own. But here, all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus. In other words, they, learn, they live to coddle themselves, to pamper themselves, to stroke themselves. They lived for themselves. I think Paul is saying Timothy was liberated from himself so that he could actually care about and care for others. Timothy lives and thinks Christianly. Timothy cares deeply. And thirdly, Timothy serves redemptively. Do you see that? It's in verse 22. He says, you know the proof of him, that as a son with his father... Timothy, as a son with his father, Paul, served with me in the gospel. Paul's business, of course, was the gospel. 
Paul, nobody cherished the gospel like Paul. Paul defined it, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. I mean, his masterpiece, his theological masterpiece, the book of Romans, is an exposition of the gospel. I think Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the thesis statement of the book. And what's he doing there? Defining what the gospel is. It's the power of God and the righteousness of God. Romans 1, 16 and 17. And the whole rest of the book of Romans is an exposition of that thesis statement. Paul loved and cherished the gospel. His business was the gospel. And he wanted his spiritual son, his beloved and faithful son in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. He wanted his spiritual son to carry on the business. Timothy had learned the family business very well. That's what Paul was saying. It served his apprenticeship. I mean, every Jewish father wanted to teach his son a trade, whatever the father's business was. Paul's business was the gospel, and he wanted Timothy to carry that on into the next generation. He had served his apprenticeship with Paul and passed all of the tests, summa cum laude. You know the proof of him. You know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Right alongside of the apostle Paul, Timothy had rendered a slave's obedience. Actually, that word serve comes from the word doulos. It's the verbal form of it. The word doulos means a slave. So he's really saying that right alongside of the Apostle Paul, Timothy had served a, had rendered a slave's obedience to the ministry of the gospel. He set aside his own rights, his own will, his own schedule, his own property, his own resources. That's what slaves always have to do. So we have a benevolent taskmaster. He set all of that aside in order to join with Paul in the rescue operation. This is what it means, I think, to be a true servant of God. It means to think Christianly. It means to care deeply. And it means to serve redemptively. In a word, it means caring for others rather than pampering ourselves. Now, I have a third point, and I'm not going to go through it. Much to your relief. I just want to touch on it. Risking everything for others rather than protecting ourselves, and Epaphroditus is the model there. And the only point, I have five points here. You're not going to get them. But I want to give you the last point. Timothy was, uh, or rather, Epaphroditus was family-connected. He's a brother. He was, um, uh, he was team-focused. He's, he's my fellow worker and fellow soldier. He was mission-driven. He's your messenger, your apostolon, a very responsible term. Describe someone on a mission. He was God-centered. He ministered to me, and that word ministered is liturgon. We get our English word liturgy from it, and it meant that everything Epaphroditus did on this mission was an act of worship to the Lord. But finally, I just want to say this about Timothy. He was a risk taker. If you look at verse 30, you'll see that. In verse 30, what does Paul say? Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life. Literally, he risked his life. Now, this is a gambler's term. We don't like to think of it in that way, but that's what it is. This is a gambler's term in Greek, meaning to stake everything on the turn of the dice. Only in this case, if I may put it this way, Paul rescues the term May I put it this way? He rescues the term from the casino. He disinfects it, cleanses and sanitizes it, removes from it all the infective agents and organisms of sin and greed and covetousness and corruption and crime that attach themselves to the gambling industry. And then he brings it into the body of Christ. In other words, Epaphroditus stakes nothing on a turn of the dice. He stakes everything on the sovereignty of Jesus Christ at work in his life. 
He's willing to risk everything that he is and has, including even the possible loss of his physical life, which he almost experienced there, if only he could know and serve Christ and his cause. All of this is what it means to be a true servant of God. May I say this in closing? It was because of people like this, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. It was because of Timothy, like, or because of people like this. In the first century, that the body of Christ not only survived, it prospered. And it not only prospered in many respects, it conquered. And we know it endured. Because Rome and the Caesars are all gone, but Jesus and his followers are still here. And if we want to be people like this, if we want to be a first century church, that's what I hope every New Testament church will be. Every Bible-believing church like this one on the North American continent will become, if it isn't already, a first century church in a 21st century world. If we want to join people like this and be that kind of a church, kind of a church, we'll have to welcome and embrace these sterling practices of an authentic servant of God. And what does that look like? Well, sacrificing for others rather than preserving ourselves caring for others rather than pampering ourselves and risking everything for others rather than protecting ourselves. Let's ask God to make us that kind of people. Pray together. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being with this body of believers. Our hearts are warmed to see this great lighthouse perched right here on this busy corner in this very significant city and surroundings. In the midst of all the darkness, here is this light. Here is this salt. Help us to be the kind of light that dispels the darkness and the kind of salt that inhibits the decay. And help us to flesh out the ethic of what it means to be a true servant of God. We learn lessons from Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, and we are reminded that they are cut out of the same bolt of cloth as we are. And therefore, by the aid of the same spirit and word and grace that they drew upon, we too can be such servants. Grant that it should be so. Grant your continued rich blessing on this good church. We pray in Christ's name.